This is the Tribal Malfunctions Podcast. Tribal Malfunctions is a thrilling cyberpunk story of gangs, guns, greed, and the power of independent trucking set in 22nd century Boston. I am your host and narrator, Chang Terhune. Now join me please as we enter the strange world of Tribal Malfunctions. And welcome, welcome, welcome to Chapter 13 of Tribal Malfunctions Podcast. Wow, lucky number 13. Didn't think we'd get here. Pretty amazed we got here. Uh, If you are listening to this in real time, it's been a couple weeks uh, gap between uh, Chapter 12 and Chapter 13. Hey, what can I say? Uh, Real life happens, things happen, and they get in the way. But I am back in the saddle, ready to resume telling you the tale of this podcast um and things are moving quite along uh big exciting stuff in episode 12 and um the plot thickens as plots always do if they're good um hope you're enjoying it as much as i am uh because i'm really digging it it's a lot of fun to read this and do this um gonna try and keep my schedule consistent going out for the next uh for the remaining episodes of which there are about seven, maybe eight. And, uh, well, you know, if you want to go catch up on those right now, I'll give you a few seconds to do that. Uh, It's only about 12 episodes. Go. And there you have it. That was uh, Vindaloo the Wonder Chicken. uh, Timing you out, so hope you're all caught up. Episode 13 is about to begin, as always. There are curse words, there's swearing, there's don't play it around the kids, there are adult themes, uh, there's bells ringing. There's all sorts of stuff happening here, folks. I'd hate for uh, you to get caught up in any of the loose ends or anything like that, so uh, don't, um, you know, uh, just don't play it around the kids. Or people who are immature, people can't handle it. Uh, this is a great science fiction story, I hope you enjoy it again as much as I do. Pleasure for me to bring this to you. So, without further ado, let us begin and resume our journey in the world of tribal malfunctions. Thank you. 
people, 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 you are listening live and rising high on 107.5 FM Gorilla Radio for the half cats and kittens. But enough of that old folks job. What I got coming down here for you right now is a brand new jam called People's Rise. Listen up and get activated. Stay woke, but don't be broke. Close Corner Records. Deep Stack 9 was considered the poet of the heavy boy generation. Travel Malfunctions, Chapter 13, Dungarees Oris rode through the night in silence aboard a northbound train, tending to his wounded hand with a small first aid kit purchased from the train's vending machine. The burn would be gone in the morning, with only a slight blemish, where ash was ground into the wound. The trip back allowed Oris too much time to think and let his anger build. Aris felt the real damage deep beneath his skin would leave a permanent scar. And without a tablet to distract him, he was left with the lousy selection of the train's video channels, or a selection of worn tablet zines left by other travelers. Denied his normal outlets for distraction, he was dangerously close to exploding by the time the train pulled into South Station. When he almost yelled at a family of Puerto Rican refugees wearing Viva la PRFN shirts, 
He knew he needed to tamp it down or else end up in a jail cell. He waited on the platform by a steel kiosk for a few minutes while the other passengers disembarked. When they were all gone and the cleaning crews were coming up the platform, he finally left. Aris rode the tea home, clutching his right hand, rubbing the bandage, knowing it wouldn't heal right if he kept messing with it. But the burning of the derma heal and a fascination with watching the healing made him draw the bandage back every few seconds. It's not going to heal if you keep messing with it, said an old woman with dyed red hair sitting next to him. Aris glared and she shook her head, then returned to looking at her tablet. Aris felt bad, but resisted an impulse to apologize. Instead, he sat staring ahead and digesting the last 24 hours. He fidgeted in his seat, feeling like his muscles were worms crawling across his bones as anger spread deep into his body. Aris tugged the collar around his neck against the cold as he left the tea station near his house. He walked home and found the light on. He waited outside for a few minutes until he could bring his anger down below the surface, then unlocked the back door and stepped into the kitchen. A trio of cards lay on the table, as well as two drawings from his children. Aris sat in his chair at the chipped wooden table, then tore open the cards, smiling faintly as he read them. One from Inea, one from Wendell, and one from his mother-in-law. The children's drawings were sweet, covered with X's and O's around pictures of their family. Hey, Aris looked up to see Minea standing in the doorway, clutching her bathrobe around her. Hey, hey, babe, he said, surprised by the emotion that came spilling out with those two words. How you holding up, she asked. Aris shrugged. I, I, I don't know. It was... It, it was... He shuddered. His tears began to blur her form. Aris steadied his hands and pushed the cards and drawings away before clutching his forehead. Then he began to sob. Minea came to his side, pulling him to her. He slumped against his wife's body as she held him. Aris wrapped his arms around her, burying his face into her robe as he cried harder. Over the next few hours, he had the distinct impression of watching himself at a distance as emotion dumped out of his body. He felt curiously unmoved as Manea held him close for a while. Eventually, as she quieted him and lifted him, he moved, without his own impulse, to lift the right leg, then the left, some other force at work in his body as it shed tears through an emotional flood. Aris cried silently as she removed her robe, hung it on the loose hook he nailed to the bedroom door years ago, and then returned to him. He watched her body through the pale green nightgown as she lay him down to remove his boots and socks. She unbuttoned his shirt and slid it gently away from him. She undid his belt, slid his pants off, and leaving him in his boxers, Manea climbed into bed to lay next to him. She drew him toward her, cradling Aris' head in her arms. Aris took in the scent of his wife, her body soft and drowsy from the sleep he'd interrupted. He slid an arm around her, resting it on her back. His face was nestled just between her breasts, covered by the gown's silken fabric. In the near darkness, he saw the curve of her shoulder past the swell of her breast. 
Aris' breath shifted slightly. You okay? she asked. Yeah, he said. It's weird, but I'm kind of... Kind of what? she said. I know it's fucked up, but I feel... I feel like I need to feel anything but this. No, I get it, she said, kissing him. Remember when my dad died? Aris laughed while, without a word, Manea slipped out from underneath him and slid the straps of her gown off. She shed the whole thing and kicked it from the end of the bed, then ran a hand across his face, down his chest, and stopped at the waistband of his boxers. Ever so gently, she slipped them down his hips and threw them aside. Their lovemaking was simple, intimate, and uncomplicated. Manea took Aris inside her, silencing him with a finger the few times he attempted to speak. She pushed her hands on his chest and let him rest his hands on her hips. With nothing more than the sound of their breathing and the occasional noise from outside, they moved in a quiet rhythm. Her eyes were closed, loose hair framing a slight smile across her face. She moved her hips over and around ours until he came in a slow bloom within her. When their breathing slowed and calmed, Manea slid off Aris and took her place alongside him. Again, who the hell wants to feel as bad as that, she said. No one does. I sure as hell don't want you to. Ever. She pulled the covers over them, and he was soon asleep, lulled into calm and comfort by the familiar feel of his wife next to him. Aris awoke to golden morning sunlight streaming into the bedroom. Manea's side of the bed was empty and the house was eerily quiet. He squinted at the bedside clock until his eyes focused. 10.17 a.m. Aris swore, then rolled out of bed, scrambling for his work clothes. As he passed the dresser, he saw a note written across Manea's mirror in hollow form. Hope you slept well, baby. Took care of the kids and went to work. Mama is at my Aunt Julie's house. Take the day for yourself. If you do come to the garage, I'll arm the doormat and leave it on. Take all the time you need. We can handle it. See you at dinner. Love, Triple A. Aris smiled and dropped the pair of pants he was holding, then absently scratched himself while he looked around the room. He decided on showering first, then put on his weekend clothes pair of black jeans, a clean black t-shirt, and simple black hooded sweatshirt. He made himself breakfast and ate in front of the TV, a forbidden pleasure in Manea's house. When he was done, he flipped around the channels. 
The news was uninteresting. The usual bleak, hysterical reporting about the growing crime wave in the city, escalating gang fights, addiction rates rising outside the CFZ, and more of the same. Aris surfed until he found a rerun of Little Annie and settled on it. He'd seen this episode before and brooded while watching it. Little Annie wandered the cavernous basement of her mansion prison, lit by bare antique bulbs which cast more ominous shadows than light in a storeroom filled with shelves containing strange, dust-covered, and rusty machine parts. The hem and sleeves of her dress were smudged with grease. Aris tried with effort to remember how she got there and what happened next. Little Annie reminded him a bit of Yuki locked in her warehouse, and he wished yet again that he'd grabbed his tablet before running. He checked his phone, but once locked, the tablet couldn't be opened remotely. He'd have to get a new one, but the information might not have backed up in time. Once he started thinking about the tablet, Arnus could barely sit still. Anger from the previous day had boiled off, leaving a simmering irritability and indecisive agita. He realized he'd taken so few days off in the last 10, 15 years or so, that when he wasn't surrounded by the controlled chaos of work or family, he felt a little off kilter. Suddenly, the thought of watching TV or puttering around the house like an old man building his own coffin irritated him to the point of screaming. Aris grabbed his clean coat, slipped on boots, and headed outside, slamming the door behind him. It was a clear, bright, and cold February day. As he tugged on his hat and buttoned his coat around him, the sun pierced his squinting eyes. He fumbled for his glasses in the pocket and found an old pair of Moke Fives. As he slipped them on, they blocked the sun and displayed a pairing request. He blinked at the yes icon, then continued walking to the tea station. As he walked, he adjusted the ad filter until his line of sight was quiet and free of distractions. With no particular destination in mind, he boarded the first train that arrived. Aris rode into the city in a nearly empty car, absently noting the stops. As the train passed Park Street, he realized he was on the way to the neighborhood of the Ortiz building. Aris got off at the Berkeley Street stop and ran up the stairs to the street and surface, emerging in Back Bay near Columbus Avenue. He strolled along, heading south, but without a real destination. Just after crossing the bridge on Berkeley, he passed his barbershop and collided with a patron exiting in a heated discussion with someone just behind them. Hold on a sec. Hey, asshole, watch where you... The man said and glared at Aris, only to break into a smile. Hey, Mr. A! Aris realized it was Casal, his neighborhood patrolman, and fumbled before smiling. Uh, hey, Casal, he said. Aris shook his hand and pointed at his head. Nice cut. Looks sharp. Yeah, thanks, said Casal. These guys do a good job. Lots of cops go here, right near the station. What are you doing? I'm just walking around, not doing much, said Aris, shrugging. The man Casal was speaking with nodded at him, then walked away. Uh, hey, are you hungry? asked Casal. Want to come grab some lunch? Sure, said Aris. Why not? Great, said Casal. Good place around the corner. Nice joint, even if it is full of cops. Aris laughed aloud while cringing in his gut. He'd have been happier dining in a pool of hungry sharks. They walked and made small talk for a few blocks until Casal led them into a restaurant. Outside, there was no sign, only an antique brass plate with the numbers 310 over the door handle. The windows were nearly opaque with condensation and privacy coverings. 
As Casal opened the door, Aris found that inside it was pretty much like the paddock. The suspended-in-time decor, patrons mostly cops, who could have been third or fourth generation. Casal said some hellos, waved and joked with others as they passed. He pointed Aris toward a pair of empty seats at the bar. Who the hell's this? Someone said. They were squeezing past a half-dozen cops seated around a table covered in beer bottles and shot glasses. The man speaking to Casal was huge, even for an MBPD cop, a species known for being heavily augmented like their bodies were their own personal hot rod. Aris didn't like the cop's brows, nor the depth of his wide eyes searching like a predator's. His face was hard, skin taut over his skull. His scalp was clean-shaven and glinted where surgical implants protruded around official and unofficial animated MBPD tattoos. His arms bulged under his straining white shirt, while his striped tie looked as if it could barely stay around his neck. The man was like a cable wound too tight, ready to snap and shear and kill all those around him. You taking another CI out to lunch, or is this your date? The others at the table laughed. Casal chuckled mirthlessly. Yeah, fuck you, Doyen, he said. How about you get an implant that'll help you Mirandize a motherfucker without stuttering? The others booed as Casal laughed for real. He nudged Aris forward, and they took their seats. Sheesh, friends, said Aris, glancing back at the table full of bulls. Doyen eyed them, his jaw working. Them? said Casal. Fuck no. Hate those fucks. Massachusetts State Highway Patrol. Investigations Division. Bunch of bastards. Always up in our shit. Fuck em. I thought all cops stuck together, said Aris. Yeah, when there's a funeral or something, said Casal. Otherwise, we're just as petty and shitty as anybody else. You should see how rowdy the softball and football games get. Half the time, they need to call cops in to break up the fights. Aris laughed. Casal ordered two beers from an unsmiling, scarred bartender wearing a dirty clip-on bow tie. Now really, said Casal, what the fuck are you doing around here? I can't remember the last time I saw you outside your shop. I guess I'm just kinda out of sorts, said Aris. He nodded while the bartender put the bottles in front of him. They clinked and then drank. And my mom died a few days ago. Jesus, said Casal. Why didn't you say so? Casal gestured at the bartender, and the man nodded, wrinkled gray skin shaking with the movement. Oh, I'm sorry, man. Thanks, said Ars. It's weird, because I haven't seen her in like ten years. But before then, we weren't too close, you know? The maternal instinct dried up when my sister took off. I pretty much raised myself then. The bartender placed a bottle of liquor in front of them, and two shot glasses, then poured a generous amount into each. Casal took one and pushed the other at Aris. To your mom, said Casal. Aris nodded, frowning slightly. Whatever she did, she did it right by raising you into the man you are now. Aris clinked his glass with Casal's, then downed the shot. Ooh, Irish whiskey, he thought, as he tasted then winced and swallowed, feeling the fire go all the way down. Eh, maybe she did okay, I guess, said Aris. My sister said she was a rhino addict for a while before the end. Oh, man, said Casal. That's awful. Didn't know you could be an addict for a long time on that shit. 
Well, you, you're thinking of ouch or KK cigars. Rhino users can string it out a little while, but eventually they get all fucked up and are stopped as Casal eyed him with a half smile on his face. You got some knowledge of this, said Casal. Sounds like more than just your mom. Am I right? Ars shrugged, wondering how to backpedal without sweating through his shirt. Known some rhino heads in my times, he said. Kids in high school, mostly. Yeah, said Casal, sipping his beer, then refilling their shot glasses. We all seen that. They saw a lot of that when I was still running with Meng Meng 225. Ars stared bug-eyed at him. You banged, he said. Casal grimaced, then rolled his sleeves back to reveal arms fully covered in tattoos up to his wrists. Amid the Cambodian script and wide, flat-nosed faces of gods, Aris saw the MM-225 insignia. Who the fuck wasn't banging back in the day, said Casal. He waved a finger to either side of him. Half these fucking cops ran with a crew back in the day. What? You think we were all born into cop families and raised in blue suits? Aris laughed. Yeah, I, I guess I did. Kind of surprised is all. Casal nodded. Yeah, I grew up out in the Alewife Towers. M225 landed there about 75 years ago and took hold. We were always at war with the Somali gangs, Russians, Chinese, and of course the Irish. Then there were the cops. Most of the time they just kept us penned into the towers and low-rise courtyards, so we just fight each other and then leave folks in Arlington and Cambridge alone. So how'd you get out, said Ars. A cop. An old-school Irish guy. Lieutenant Joe Beatty. Arrested me for dealing some toque outside of the CFZ. Instead of throwing me into the can, he took me under his wing for a while. Showed me rhino addicts and dead kids in the morgue after gang fights. Even took me up to the sleep chambers in Lynn. Artis shuddered. Many a heavy boy did a stint of chemical sleep in the North Shore Juvenile Detention Facility. Notoriously strict and poorly run, inmates there often died while those who didn't often emerged with brain damage or worse. Casal nodded, then downed another shot. Beatty thought I could do better, said I was lucky because I still had a choice. Get caught committing one more crime, and he'd personally see that I went straight to Lynn or the Hull Brain Farm, or else I could go straight. You went straight, I take it, said Aris, downing his shot. Casal shook his head. Hell no, he said. Told him to go fuck himself. He laughed so hard he dumped me in front of my tower's entrance, right in front of my boys. Aris hissed through his teeth. Casal glanced at him and nodded. Yeah, they thought I was snitching. Dragged me to the train tracks and beat the shit out of me. Left me to get cut in half by a commuter train. Shit, said Aris. MM-225 didn't fuck around. Nah, said Casal. This was during a real bad war with the Turkish gangs. MM-225 was still sided with some Armenians out of Watertown. They didn't trust nobody. Oh boy, said Aris. I know what that's all about. Manea's Armenian. Say no more. Casal nodded slowly turning his beer in its ring of condensation. Beatty found me out there on the tracks, bloody and unconscious. Made me an offer again. Of course, I took it. The guy personally drove me to Corpse Hospital, not one of them welfare joints. Got me fixed up into the, uh, and then into a rehab program. Did that, and then I did a few years in the army. Uh, I joined the force after I came back from Greenland. So he did you right, huh? 
said Aris. It's all here, said Cassell. He looked around the room nonchalantly, then back at Aris. Sometimes cops are just a gang with different cuts and colors, you know? But we're still trying to do good. Most of us, anyway. Aris was about to ask what he meant when Cassell looked up at the TV and swore. What? said Aris, looking at the TV news report on rising gang violence. The sound was cut off, but footage of police battling youths in the bottom crawl indicated these were Scandinavian refugee gangs. These fucking yomps, said Cassell. They're almost as bad as fucking powwow plus. These kids grew up during the war with the Russian Federation. They are fucking animals. Eat only raw meat and get high off petrochemicals. No kidding. Fucking maniacs. Jesus, said Aris. In my day, we'd have fucking driven them out, said Casal. But with this fucking mayor, fucking forget it. What's Mayor Ransom got to do with it, said Aris. Casal shook his head. What? said Aris. Nah, it can't talk about it, said Casal. And then he whispered, Not here. He poured them both another shot and downed his fast. Aris looked over his shoulder to see Doyen staring at Casal, a queer smile on his face. Aris tried to look away without attracting attention. You got problems on the force, said Aris. He thought of what Tiny Town said about police and the NYC heavy boys working together. Not here, Casal repeated, but with more defeat in his voice. Then let's take it somewhere else, said Aris. Casal nodded. Yeah, yeah, let's blow, Aris said, loud enough to be heard over the din. This place smells too much like bacon and I ain't in the mood for pork right now. Someone laughed while most of the room booed. Casal and Aris got up and made their way out, but couldn't avoid the table of state troopers. Leaving so soon? Doyen, the big one, said. You a lightweight chicken boy? No, said Aris, laughing. Your wife's got a one o'clock opening in both holes, and there's a discount if we fill her up in 30 minutes or less. Doyen rose so fast, his thighs lifted the table before clattering down. The men on either side of him were knocked over, but quickly rose. Casal pushed Aris towards the door. Sorry, he's, he's a little drunk, Casal said, patting Aris' shoulder. He's grieving. His mother just died. Duane said nothing, his skin glistening with sweat, face a rictus of anger. Aris winked before Casal pushed him through the door, then dragged him to the corner. Oh, man, hilarious, Casal said. Aris began laughing when he realized Casal wasn't going to chew him out. You fucking tripped his switch. I thought he was going to blow a vein or two and then rip us in half. Aris nodded, the adrenaline mixing with alcohol and invigorating him. Come on, he said, straightening up. I know a place with no cops. They walked a few blocks, then arrived at a wooden door with black paint peeling off in strips, revealing older red paint underneath. Dim neon letters in the window blinked Tim's into the bright noontime sun. This place? said Casal. This fucking dump? One of my favorites, said Aris. Burgers the size of your head. Huge steak fries, too. Decent lo mein and ramen if you want as well. Inside, they were swallowed by the near darkness. Aris slipped his shades on, ramping up the available light. The interior was dim all day and night. Decades of grill and cigarette smoke obscuring the walls and framed photos that hung there. 
Most of the patrons were black, though a few white and Asian faces appeared here and there. Ah, Mr. A! Someone shouted. R.S. dragged Casal back past the bar to an empty table near the grill. A big man stood behind it, obsidian skin glistening with sweat. A long time! Too long time! Allo Pacifique, said Aris. Sava? Ah, oui, Sava, said the man. He eyed Kassav and looked at Aris with a cocked eyebrow. In his left hand, he held a big knife, calmly but expertly. Il y a un ami de notre, said Aris. The man nodded, tipped a forefinger off his temple, then flipped some meat on the flaming grill. Kassav looked at the laboring vent above as it struggled to remove the smoke, then smiled wanly the dark-skinned man. We're good, said Aris, clapping Casal's shoulder. Have a seat. As they sat, a waitress came over. Aris ordered four beers, two burgers, and a bowl of chicken wings. Good thing I got my shots, said Casal, looking at the steaming pile of grilled chicken when it arrived. Shut the fuck up, said Aris. This is farm fresh. Pacifique's family is in northern Maine. Some of the best beef, chicken, pork, and goat he'll ever have. The beers arrived, and the men clinked bottles, then drank. Casal began to relax enough to eat. So, what's going on, said Aris. It ain't easy to talk about, said Casal, especially with a civilian. You can trust me, said Casal. You can trust me, said Aris. Who the hell am I going to tell? Casal nodded. You're respected in the force, I'll tell you that. He pulled on his beer, despite a pretty long youth jacket. Aris thought about reacting indignantly for a moment before shrugging and drawing on his beer. Then we got a little more in common than just slanty eyes and little yellow dicks. Speak for yourself, said Casal. I'm packing a water main down here. I bet it leaks like one too, Casal laughed. So you always check the records of people on your beat? Casal shook his head. Nah, he said. Your name raised a little flag when I filed a report on those two botched B&Es a while back. Oh yeah? said Aris, wondering if you shouldn't fake an excuse to leave. Yeah, typed your name in and pop, your jacket came up. Nothing too bad. You're a solid citizen now, an asset to the community. Someone didn't think you were a threat, so your heavy boy days were demoted to a note of interest rather than a big red flag. Thanks, officer, said Aris. Don't thank me. Happened way before we ever met. About nine, ten years ago, he said. Well, so what's up, said Aris. Casal groaned and downed the rest of his beer. It goes back to right around when the big battel went down. It's kind of hard to... Well... Aris nodded as Casal remained silent, fiddling with the wet paper label on his beer. Aris didn't pressure him, the difficulty in relating the story evident on Casal's face. He looked into the dim, amber-lit booths across the bar at patrons slumped over drinks, barbecue, or noodle bowls. The food arrived and Casal nodded at his burger before lifting the bun to douse it with ketchup. After a few bites and finishing another beer, he wiped his hands on his napkin and spoke. Actually, even before that it was weird. Well, like how? Well, what do you know about the MBPD? Just enough to stay out of trouble, said Aris. Casal smirked. Well, the forces joined together 12 years ago, so MBPD encompassed the city of Boston on out to Route 128. 
Not surprising, there was a lot of grumbling, especially because state police didn't join in like they did in most states. They stayed separate. I mean, there's always been friction between the two. Casal pressed his forefinger edges together and rubbed them. But this is definitely the worst ever. Aris nodded while devouring his burger. None of the towns outside Boston liked it, but they still came together because it would be easier for pool and resources, less jurisdiction and hassles, and so on. Casal took a huge bite of his burger and barely chewed before continuing. Yeah, but the Stades wouldn't share. They kept to themselves and got the Wormway, Surface Highway, and the Turnpike, while we got everything else in the metro area. The state police theoretically joined up with national oversight, but... But what? asked Aris. In the last ten years, it's been worse, said Casal. Used to be they'd drag their feet if we came to them for help, but now they barely coordinate with other agents, and are really difficult in general. They only work with international agencies, and specific ones at that. Like they got a bias towards certain foreign interests. I mean, I'm seeing a lot of different faces coming out of the headquarters down on Neeland. A lot of Asian faces. Oh shit, not that, said Aris. Casal laughed. No, man, no. I'm talking a lot of so-called faces in uniforms. Shit, man. I've even seen free Canadian protection agency lungs down there. Aris nearly choked as he took another bite of burger. Kind of weird, I know, he said. I mean, I'd expect some French or English with us being linked to the Atlantic corridors. And maybe Scandinavian alliance yums, but... Tch, Doyen and his boys are really hush-hush about it said Casal, as if he hadn't heard Aris. More importantly, they're really edgy about anyone going near the Wormway or the Ortiz building. So they're just being dicks about jurisdiction, said Aris? It sounds like typical cop stuff to me. Casal didn't respond, but shook his head. This is way worse. There's no reason for us to go near it, really. But MBPD stays away just so they don't freak out. Same with highways. If we even travel in cruises on them, we get tailed until we exit. Sucks, said Aris, around a mouthful of fries. So it's just weird bureaucratic shit? I mean, sounds like gang bullshit to me. Pretty much, said Kassam. But lately it's worse. They're starting to show up at crime scenes and take over. Especially stuff around the CFZ. They say it's an interstate matter and cite special jurisdiction or some such shit. A couple times, fights have broken out when they were putting their noses in where they shouldn't. I got videos of the fights. You want to see? Really? said ours. Sure. Yeah, from my dash cam. Save it on my phone. Never know when something like that might be handy. Casal pulled his phone out and thumbed around until he nodded. Here you go. Ours took the phone and watched the small screen. The camera view had digital overlays around the edges, but Aris could see the footage clearly. BPD officers in riot gear punching state police officers in their blue armor. It was so chaotic, Aris couldn't tell what or where the original crime was. Haven't heard about these, said Aris. Casal shook his head. And you won't, he replied. Mayor Ransom wants it that way. He's been favoring them more and more. He's even stiffened the MBPD unions over negotiations. He's been talking about putting the city under state police control due to its importance as a port. The media could just pull this down off of one ski feet, couldn't they? said Aris, handing Casal his phone. Casal slipped it in his pocket and shook his head. 
It got wiped off pretty quick. Mayor Ransom petitioned Homeland Services to blank it out due to security issues. Jesus, said Aris, thinking of his sister. So what's it all mean? I'm not sure, said Casal. Might be a power play or something. I don't know. Only thing is, Dorian is getting chummy with people in my precinct and the MBPD as a whole. Might mean MBPD's swinging towards cooperating with them. Which means... Which means you've got a police state, essentially, said Casal. Funny how a cop doesn't want that, but shit, man, I watch TV. Seen what went down in SoCo in Free Canada. That shit ain't right. He downed his beer, the third or fourth. Aras had lost count. That shit, uh, that shit ain't American. Aras nodded, wondering if it connected at all with Cho's greater presence in Boston, other than the fact that he was Korean. Then Casal's phone bleeped. Crap, he said, looking at the hollow screen above his hand. Carrie's gonna kill me. What's wrong, said Aras. Casal stood and wiped his mouth on the napkin, then fumbled for his wallet. Gotta get the kids from school, but I sure as shit ain't driving that now, he replied. Well, forget about paying, said Aras. It's on me. What? said Casal, dropping his wallet. Fuck that. I sit here and tell you all the... Nah, said Aras. You made me feel better. You're a good friend. Thanks, Casal said, slipping his wallet back into his pocket. Besides, it sounds like you might need cab fare, said Aris. Casal laughed. Yeah, that's about right. The officer downed his beer and stuck a hand out to Aris. Thanks, Mr. Ray. My pleasure, said Aris. Anytime. Casal slapped his shoulder and stumbled out of the restaurant. Aris waved and the waitress came by to swipe his palm. Aris' phone rang, but a glance told him it was anonymous. Probably a spam marketer calling from some bunker in the south or a prison in Denmark. When the waitress nodded at him for paying, he stood up. Hope you ain't driving, said Pacifique, nodding at the canyon of bottles on the table. Nope, said Aris. Gotta walk it off. Good man. Pacifique regarded him impassively. Take care now. Aris waved and turned, passing an old man with white hair beating his cane against the dark jukebox as he made for the door. Aris slipped on his specs and dropped the light levels to accommodate the setting sunlight. Another anonymous call came, which Aris ignored. After two blocks, he'd gotten four more, so he finally answered the sixth call. What the fuck do you people want, he replied. He heard a series of clicks on the other end, then a female voice. Pretty smooth, especially since I've got your tablet. Yuki, said Aris. Yep, she replied. Is this a bad time? Uh, no, he said. But is it safe for you to call me? Yeah, she said. Cho can't trace this. It's rerouted to fucking back. If he tried to, by the time he got the location down to a continent or hemisphere, I'd be onto him and off the phone. Oh, said Aris. Well, cool. So what's up? Yuki laughed. Oh, nothing. I guess Cho caught you, huh? Yeah, kind of, said Aris. I did my best to keep him off your tail, but his boys found my old hidey hole. Yeah, I figured, said Aris. You okay? 
He rubbed the back of his right hand against his elbow. Yeah, fine. Good, she said. The tablet is on its way back by a secure courier, actually. Thanks, said Aris. No problem, said Yuki. If he'd seen it, we'd probably both be dead. Good thing he didn't. Yeah, said Yuki. Especially after I got a better look at the data from 4291. Oh yeah, said Aris. What was it? Can't totally say just yet. Not to be a tease, but I want to make sure I've got the facts together before I can pull someone else into it. Someone else, said Aris. You mean... You, genius, she said. Who do you think? I don't know, said Aris. He ducked into a doorway out of the wind. I'm a little drunk. Yeah, I'd be getting loaded too if it didn't fuck with all these men, she said. So once I pull all this together, I'm going to need to act fast. Sure you're ready for this? Ready for? Jesus, you are drunk. Ready to take down Cho. Oh yeah, said Aris. I've been ready since he threw me out of his fucking limo. Great, because I'll need some serious help. I mean... What? said Aris. There was no answer. Yuki? He's planning something huge. Her voice was quieter and afraid. Something really bad, I think. Well, we'll take him down, said Aris. Haha, <laughs> don't be so sure, little man. He heard something crash in the background. Terry, get down from there. The little fucker's in trouble, said Aris. Now? Try always. Okay, I gotta go. I don't know how long this will take, but I'll call you on these anonymous secure lines, okay? Can I call it the garage? Maybe, said Aris. Not so sure it's safe. I'll make it legit. Just keep an ear out. She hung up before Aris could say goodbye. When he got home, Ara stumbled upstairs and flopped into bed. It spun under him for a bit. Then the next thing he knew, he was looking at his daughter Naren's face, staring at him. Hi, sweetie, he said, then slurped up a line of spittle he'd been excreting in his sleep. Daddy's awake, she screeched, then ran away. Aris lifted himself from the bed as the dizziness followed him like a vapor trail. Slightly drunk, he stepped carefully to the bathroom to splash his face with cold water. Once his appearance was satisfactory, Aris went downstairs to join the family for dinner. As he sat down, his mother-in-law said something that made Manea hiss at her in a way he'd never heard before. Her mother recoiled, saying little during the rest of the meal while Manea and Aris chatted with the children about their day. After dinner, they watched TV for a while, then got the children ready for bed. Aris bathed them, put them to bed, read to them, sang to them, then kissed them goodnight. Afterwards, he came to Manea reading in bed. She smiled at him, then lay her tablet down. They missed you, she said. I miss them too, he replied. He lay down next to her, and she put a hand on his head. So, she said. Was it awful? About as weird as you might think, said Aris. He told her about the trip, omitting the visit to Yukikor, and the drive with Cho. When he was done, she nodded. When we got married, you said your mother was out of the picture, but... I honestly had no idea where she was, said Aris. When I moved out, it was a really bad scene, but it had been going downhill for a while. 
So your sister found her, and... Yeah. I guess Anna Maria thought she owed her something, said Aris. He'd sobered up, and an irritable fatigue fell over him. I guess I kind of think she owed me something, too. Well, she did, said Menea. Just about every mother owes their kids a safe and stable childhood. Yeah, he replied, I, I guess so. But she had a lot of problems, so... But don't go and make excuses for her, Aris, said Menea. The sharpness of her voice almost tripped him into barking at her. Instead, she kissed his hand and squeezed it. Baby, I love you, she said. But if you want it, then honestly, anyone can hold a family together. Sure, there's tragedies, but if it's just a matter of normal life experiences, please. In this day and age, even if you get addicted to the worst stuff out there, you can go to the free clinic and get nanobes injected in your blood so you don't need to be addicted anymore. There's honest work for everyone, and even assistance for those who can't work. Unless we're talking about some global catastrophe, then really, anyone can take care of their family. I'm sorry, but I just don't buy her story. So don't backpedal on your true feelings, babe. Ara stopped as Menea shook her head. No, listen. My mother raised us while my father was putting in 18-hour days, six days a week, running the garage. When he joined up with the UN Peacekeepers Coalition during the Netherlands riots, she took care of us and ran the garage. Huh, said Aris. I forgot about that. As a kid, he'd seen stuff about the Battle of Amsterdam on TV. Now he tried to imagine Mr. A in the midst of the fighting outside the Hague, belly protruding with a cigar perched in the corner of his mouth. Which reminds me, what did she say to you when I sat down to dinner? What? said Menea. Oh, oh, that. It was nothing. Nothing? Aris said, sitting up and laughing. That nothing, she said, made you come back with something so harsh, I'm glad I never learned our Armenian. Menea was quiet for a moment, then said, I don't want to upset you. I don't want you to judge her too harshly. Judge her? said Aris. She's the mother of my wife, the closest thing I have to a mother. Besides, ten years of her judging me and I've made it this far. How much worse could it be? Well, she said if you were this drunk a day after your mother's funeral, maybe it was a good thing she kicked you out. Ara snorted, then shook his head. I told her I'd throw her baggy ass out into the snow myself if she didn't shut up, said Menea. You didn't, said Aris. Menea nodded, a faint smile slipping across her face. Wow, baby, that's nasty. Well, my mother's had it tough, she said. I mean, you don't know all she's been through. But a rough history doesn't give anyone the right to be mean. I suppose not, said Aris, wondering how she might apply that to him. And for all you've done since Daddy died, and what you've turned the garage into these days? Manea leaned forward to sling her arms over his shoulders as Aris slid his around her waist. She should thank you every day. Manea kissed Aris. As she pulled back with a grimace, he laughed. You taste like the floor of the paddock, she said. Well, how would you know, said Aris. I've got a good imagination, she said. Well, so do I, said Aris, pressing his hands at her waist, feeling the curve of her back under the nightgown. Okay, mister. Go brush those teeth, and if you come back soon enough, I may be willing to give you a taste. Aris fell off the bed, scrambled into the bathroom, and grabbed his toothbrush.
Episode 13 comes in with a little defeat and ends with a little sexy times. Very cool. As always, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, Very cool. That's kind of funny. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, check in um, again next week. Mondays are usually going to be the release dates now. And I look forward to giving you another episode of Tribal Malfunctions. So zip it in, zip it out. Peace in, peace out. Namaste. he'd taken so few come on come on up there's a boy
couple times fights had broken out when they were putting their nose in where they shouldn't. Here's what I found on the web for is the interstate some special jurisdiction of some size. Shut up! Have a look. I did not want to talk to you. 